So, Mr. Lightning told me I should begin with a joke, but I don't really have anything. <laughs> but I did tell him his cannibal joke last night, and so I feel I should share that with you. <laughs> he thinks it's funny. <laughs> Actually, that's the, he originally told it to us. Um, we, we had a uh, class on Newton in this very room, and... Uh, he comes in and says, my wife just doesn't appreciate my jokes. And I told her this cannibal joke, and she just doesn't like it. And you have two cannibals, and they're, they're chewing on a clown. And the one cannibal turns to the other and says, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a reason why Mrs. Lenny doesn't like that joke. <laughs> All right, anyway, um, so as Mr. DeCon said, my topic today is an Aristotelian account of music's influence on the passions. Um, I'm going to try to stay out of technical music speak as much as possible. Um, if people have questions about that, I have a little bit of a background in some of this stuff, so I might be able to answer your questions. Um, anyway, but I'm going to try to keep it on a more general level. Um, in the politics, Aristotle holds that music is an imitation of the passions of the soul, an imitation that is able to influence the characters of its hearers. While Aristotle draws important consequences regarding the use of music in the moral life, I will restrict myself in this paper to an account of music's influence uh, on the passions from the perspective of natural philosophy. In particular, I'll focus on the question of how music is an imitation of the passions. I believe that an answer to this question provides an avenue to developing a more complete account of music's influence on the passions. Accordingly, I will approach this question of how music influences the passions in three parts. Uh, first, I'll give a general account of, pa of the passions as uh, articulated by Aristotle and developed by St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, second, I will consider the various aspects of music such as rhythm, melody, and harmony and how these imitate the passions. Uh, and having developed this account, I'll briefly uh, consider in the third and final part um, how the imitations of the passions can be said to be somehow causative of passions. But I'm going to spend most of the time in the second part sort of trying to articulate how music um, is an imitation of passion, what, what that would mean and what aspects of music make it that way. So uh, let me proceed to a consideration of the passions. Aristotle's references to the passions occur in many of his works, but uh, one of the most important discussions from the point of view of natural philosophy occurs near the beginning of the De Anima. There, Aristotle argues that the passions are not merely affections of the soul alone, but occur along with bodily movements. He gives two arguments to support this position. First, he argues that the apprehension of the object of a passion by the soul is not a sufficient cause of that passion, but in fact, the body itself plays a role in causing this passion. Uh, and he illustrates this with a couple of examples. First, the fact that someone's fears are not always provoked uh, by strong and manifestly frightening occurrences uh, shows that apprehending the object uh, by itself is not a sufficient cause of the passion. Um, on the other hand, sometimes an object that does not naturally arouse strong passions uh, nevertheless arouses strong passion on account of the condition of the body. Consequently, the state of the body influences the degree to which uh, the object of a passion affects us. Aristotle then presents a second proof that the state of the body contributes something to the passions, a, a proof that he says is even clearer. Here he points to the fact that the bodily constitution conditions the very perception of the object. He gives the example of someone finding an object that does not naturally induce fear to be fearful on account of the condition of the body. Thus, the body not only influences the degree to which an object affects us, as the first argument shows, uh, but it also affects our very perception of the object, such that our bodily constitution can lead us to feel passions towards ob objects that do not naturally cause such passions. So he's thinking of maybe people with fear of the dark or something like that, you know, sort of. Um, St. Thomas gives the example in the commentary of someone with a melancholic disposition, sort of being <laughs> disposed to be afraid of things they really shouldn't be afraid of. Um, 
Aristotle then presents, sorry, these arguments lead Aristotle to place the motion of the body into the definitions of the passions. Nevertheless, Aristotle goes on to argue that for the purposes of natural philosophy, it is just as important to include the movement of the appetitive part of the soul in the definition of the passion. Thus, it is insufficient to define anger either as a seething of blood and heat around the heart, that is, merely by its bodily manifestation, and at the same time, one should not simply define anger as an appetite for vexing in return, since this definition includes only the movement of the appetitive part of the soul, leaving out the concomitant uh, bodily affections. Um, of course, in some contexts, this latter definition, I think, would be appropriate. For example, in the rhetoric, uh, when Aristotle is uh, defining the passions there, he generally talks about them more from the side of the soul, and I think that's rather obvious why he does that, because um, the rhetorician can't really influence the bodily constitution of the, his audience. Um, maybe he could, but it'd be difficult. Um, so uh, in, so uh, in natural philosophy, however, a complete account of the passions must include both the change of the body and the change that occurs in the appetite. In developing in more detail an Aristotelian account of the passions, St. Thomas adopts Aristotle's position regarding the passions and points out that just as the body and soul are related as matter and form, so the passions and their definitions include both material and formal parts. Uh, in the case of the definition of the passion, the account of the change in appetite is formal, whereas that of the bodily, the, the bodily alteration is the material part of the definition. Correspondingly, the bodily alteration uh, and the movement of the appetite are related as material and formal parts of a single passion. As I read St. Thomas, the, this division of passions into material and formal parts is not simply a description of the passion from two different points of view or an analogy drawn from the fact that passions involve changes in both matter and form, uh, that is the body and soul, of the substance to which the passion belongs. For St. Thomas, the passion itself is truly a composite. One might give at least two reasons for this fact. First, since effects are like their causes, and the passion is an effect of the composite, it's reasonable to hold that the passions, like their causes, have material and formal parts. By itself, however, I don't think this reason is entirely conclusive, because you could say that the passion doesn't really have the, as much unity um, as the composite it proceeds from, and therefore um, you can't really say it's one thing composed of a bodily alteration and a change in the appetite. Um, so uh, uh, to, do, to establish such a unity, it's necessary to propose a second reason for contending uh, that the passions are so composed. Um, to do this, we need to follow St. Thomas in making an important distinction which occurs early in the treatise on the passions in the Prima Secundae of the Summa. Um, Unlike plants and inanimate beings, animals can undergo two different types of change. One sort, St. Thomas tells us, is a spiritual change, whereby the cognitive powers receive the intention of something, or to put this differently, receive the form of the other as other. Such a change can only belong to a living thing with a certain type of soul. In addition to being susceptible of the spiritual change of sensation, animals share with plants and inanimate bodies the, a capacity for natural change. St. Thomas offers heating and cooling as sort of standard examples of this change. By contrast to spiritual change, natural change belongs to a thing precisely insofar as it is material and possesses a body. The question naturally arises as to which sort of change occurs in the passions. One sees right away that in the case of the passions, the movement of the appetite is a sort of spiritual change, whereas the alteration of the body is a natural change. Those sorts of changes frequently occur in sensation as well. For example, the hand perceives heat by spiritual change and also uh, experiences an increase in bodily temperature. However, St. Thomas points out that the relationship between the two sorts of change in sensation and appetitive movements are not identical. In sensation, the natural change is merely an accidental condition of sensation, a point which is particularly manifest in cases where the natural change is a hindrance to sensation. For example, as a hand which is sensing heat increases in temperature, uh, it becomes less able to sense heat. By contrast, St. Thomas says, the natural change that occurs in a passion 
is essential to the movement of the appetitive part of the soul. At this point, St. Thomas does not give an explicit demonstration of the, that the movement of the appetite and bodily change are essential to each other, but one can construct a Thomistic argument based on some of St. Thomas's remarks a few questions earlier regarding the unity of the act of command and the commanded act. Uh, this is in question 17, article 4 of the Prima Secundae. Uh, there St. Thomas argues that command and the commanded act are united as form and matter uh, precisely because the higher power, which commands, uses the lower power as an instrument. Accordingly, the act of the lower power receives its actuality from the act of the higher power and is therefore related to it as potency to act. At the same time, as an instrument of the higher power, the act of the lower power bears a certain essential proportion to the higher power in its act. Since the act of the lower power is essentially proportionate to the act of the higher power and related to the higher act as potency to act, St. Thomas rightly says that the two form a unity in which the act of the lower power is material while the act of the higher power is formal. A similar account can be used to show that the matter-form relationship of the bodily alteration uh, and the appetitive movement found in a passion, that they, both, that they have this same relationship. Uh, in this case, the sensitive appetite of the soul requires in the body a proportionate movement which it uses as an instrument in its acts. For example, the adrenaline rush we experience in moments of fear enables the appetite to uh, use the body to escape whatever the danger may be. Um, the alteration of the body thus results in, uh, from the movement of the sensitive appetite and both bears a proportion to the appetite and its act and is related to the act of the appetite as potency to act. Accordingly, the two mo movements, the bodily alteration of the passion and the, the change of the appetitive part of the soul, come together as matter and form to compose a single passion. The hylomorphic account of the passions becomes more explicit as St. Thomas turns to consider the individual passions. In particular, his consideration of the principal passions, hope, fear, pleasure, and pain, contain important applications of the matter-form relationship of bodily change and appetitive movements. In considering the positive passions of pleasure and hope, which have good objects, St. Thomas contends that these passions include an expansion of the heart uh, with the movement of the appetite. In hope, it's a little bit less universally stated, but I think it's implicit in that account. Um, certainly, in, he explicitly has an article dedicated to expansion uh, in the passion of pleasure. Um, conversely, negative passions such as fear and pain cause contraction. With the exception of the discussion of hope, each text contains an explicit appeal to the proportion between material and formal parts of the passion to justify correlating a particular bodily alteration and a given affection of the soul. This discussion of hope is helpful, however, inasmuch as it shows that the proportion is not, uh, is not simply one of matter to form, but likewise of form to matter. So in the, uh, in the discussion of hope, we get this uh, discussion that reminds us of the De Anima text, uh, which we began with, where uh, we see that the body itself has a kind of influence on the way the soul experiences the passion. So it's not just a one-way proportion where form proportions matter to itself, but form itself is proportioned to the matter in the passion. Um, in young men with expansive heart, the passion of hope is found to abound, precisely because the best bodily dispositions for hope are present in such men. This shows that although the movement of the passion begins in the soul and proceeds into the body, the formal part of the passion is itself influenced by the bodily part of the passion a point which follows from the, their proportion to each other. In this way, the most important passions is, exemplify the essential hylomorphic unity ascribed to them in this Aristotelian Thomistic account. To sum up, then, we have the following account of the passions. Passions are hylomorphic composites uh, that consist of both bodily alterations, which constitute the material part of the passion, and the movement of the soul itself, which constitutes uh, the formal part. Furthermore, the material and formal parts of the passion are proportionate to each other, such that bodily alterations are suitable to the movement of the appetite. 
In this fashion, the bodily alterations serve as preparations for the body to serve as a fitting instrument for the acts that proceed from the appetite. Having set down this general account of passions, we can now turn to consider their musical imitations in the next part of the paper. This will be the main part of this uh, discussion here. Um, so it's worth noting at the beginning that scholars uh, disagree about the use of uh, the term music in Aristotle. Uh, people like Carnes Lord, who produced a translation of the politics, think that, that the term music actually extends to things like poetry. So it has kind of a, a broader sense. And I'm not going to sort of address that controversy, but just to be aware of it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrict myself to music as it's sort of meant today. Um, Music, uh, as it's understood today, can easily be divided into a material part, namely sound, uh, and formal parts, that is the rhythms, melodies, and harmonies that shape sound into a work of music. In considering how music imitates the fashion, the passions, I will first discuss uh, how sound is a fitting medium in which to represent the passions, uh, and then turn to consider the aspects of rhythm, melody, and harmony that enable music to serve as an imitation of the passions. To begin then, I'm going to first argue that sound is capable of receiving likenesses of the passions. Uh, this is most evident, I think, in the sounds made by animals. Uh, because uh, the sounds that belong to ensouled beings have this sort of special character to them, they receive the special name of voice, as Aristotle uh, writes in the De Anima, Book 2, Chapter 8. Uh, on the material level, Aristotle tells us, voice is the impact of air against the windpipe produced by an ensouled being. But to define voice merely as the impact of air on the windpipe is insufficient because then it would be impossible to distinguish voice from things like coughing. Um, thus, Aristotle adds that true voice must be accompanied by an act of imagination and accordingly is a sound that is significant. In commenting on this passage, St. Thomas points out that the air here is used as an instrument of the soul in signifying, and that the resulting sign may be either con conventional or natural. Uh, in a related discussion of sound in his commentary on the De Sensu, St. Thomas, referencing this text, points out that in animals, non-human animals, I take him to mean here, voice uh, is used to signify the passion of the animal, uh, and when thus used, voice is a natural sign so not a conventional sign. Uh, both of these points seem relatively apparent. It's clear first that animals' voices do indicate passions, for example, the bark of an angry dog, the pleased purr of the cat, the frightened squeal of the mouse. Further, it's evident that these voices are natural signs. Uh, it's not as though a group of dogs got together and agreed that the growl should signify anger. <laughs> The uh, uniform use of vocal expressions to signify a given passion across an entire species is, I think, pretty good evidence that it's a natural sign. Uh, we might add that animals don't seem to possess reason, so. But I like to give the quia. <laughs> Accordingly, it is clear that animals use the voice uh, as a natural sign of their passions. Does this mean that their voices contain the likenesses of the passions? It's certainly clear that both animals and humans recognize the significance of the voices of other animals, but one might argue that this recognition is based on a kind of inference from repeated experiences rather than a recognition of the presence of a likeness uh, in the voice. So this would be sort of a, a Humean interpretation of what's going on in these situations. Uh, there, so there appear to be two alternatives. Either we recognize the likeness of the passion in the animal's voice, or we learn that the animal's voice is a sign of the passion because we see that the animal undergoing the passion always produces a given vocal sound. Um, do we associate the growl of an angry dog with anger because we can perceive a likeness of anger or in the growl, or because we have often seen an angry reaction accompanying the growl? That's sort of a particular instance of this question. It seems that we do perceive an, a likeness of the passion in the voice of the animal and do not simply associate a certain sort of voice with a given passion based on past experiences. Aside from the fact that we appear to recognize likenesses of passions in an animal's voice the first few times we hear the voice, well before we would have had enough experiences to infer that a voice is a sign of a given passion, there appear to be two good reasons for holding that um, voices are signs of the passions precisely as likenesses. First, 
if passions were inferred from voice merely on the basis of past experience is, the animal's voice would indicate uh, a passion only because the voice is kind of a natural and consistent byproduct of the passion and not because the voice contains the likeness of the passion. And thus, the animal could not really be said to be in any way intending or meaning to signify the passion. Uh, but it seems uh, in our experience with animals that they, they do appear uh, to actually uh, signify when they are barking. The growl is, seems to be meant to ward off uh, you know, the neighbors, I guess. Um, and, and, uh, and doesn't seem to be just kind of a byproduct like the way smoke would be a sign of fire. Um, uh, hence, the voice must contain a likeness of the passion uh, since either, either you, if you're going to signify, either it comes through the li a likeness or through a conventional sign. And we've, we've ruled out conventional signs. Um, when we're talking about non-rational animals. Um, to this, we can add a second argument that voice contains a likeness to the passions. Uh, the voice itself seems to be the main reason why we ascribe uh, to a, a given passion to a, an animal. So there must be something special about the voice itself that indicates the passion the animal is undergoing. So, so it seems that, as it were, the reason why we say the dog is angry is because we hear its growl. It's not as though... Um, we sort of correlate the growl with certain other acts of the animal. Um, at, at least the main reason is the growl itself. Um, and so uh, there could be nothing other that it seems that that means that this, uh, there's actually a likeness of the passion uh, in the voice. Thus it is apparent that the voices of animals do indeed contain the likenesses of the, of the passions. I think the foregoing considerations are sufficient to show that sound can indeed contain likenesses of the passions. But I have yet to show how sound does this and why it appears to be a, a better medium for representing the passion than other sorts of sense objects. At least part of the answer to this question is that sound alone is able to receive the types of form that imitate the passions particularly well. But such arguments uh, from that sort of perspective uh, will need to be postponed till I give an account of the sort of forms that come to be in sound. Um, nevertheless, uh, I think I could, I'd like to try to present here several arguments based on the nature of sound itself that uh, seem to indicate that it's a particularly appropriate medium in which to represent the passions. Um, so let me begin by considering the capacity for different sense objects to, objects to serve as mediums of imitation. I think it's relatively clear that the objects of sight and hearing are those particularly suited uh, to the imitations found in the fine arts. Some, like paintings and sculptures, are visual imitation. Others, like music and poetry, are audible. And still others, like plays and operas, combine both uh, sorts of sense object in their imitation. Perhaps it's not too surprising to find that such imitations are primarily found in the objects of sight and hearing. Uh, according to Aristotle's poetics, imitations such as those found in the fine arts give us delight insofar as they are sources of learning. Inasmuch as the imitations of the fine arts are ordered to knowing and the ensuing the delight, the, these, those sense objects uh, which uh, form the matter of the fine arts uh, uh, most conducive to knowing will clearly be the best mediums for imitation. Accordingly, since vision and hearing are those senses through which we most gain knowledge, their objects will generally be the, those best fitted to contain imitations of things. Uh, when we turn to compare the objects of sight and hearing themselves, however, an important difficulty arises. While on the one hand, our experience tells us that passions are best represented by audible objects rather than visual ones, the Aristotelian account of the senses of sight and hearing might at first appeared to suggest that sight is a better medium for representing the passions and hearing. Uh, for one thing, it seems as though the objects of sight are in general be better mediums for imitations. This follows from the fact uh, that the sense of sight among all the exterior senses is the greatest cause of knowledge, as Aristotle clearly s states in the beginning of the metaphysics. The reason for this superior, the superiority of sight, Aristotle said, says is that it makes clear many differences in things. When he comments on this passage, St. Thomas proposes three reasons for sight's superiority. First, on the part of the power itself, sight 
is the most immaterial of the senses. Second, sight extends to more objects, both the superlunary and the sublunary, and thus is the most universal sense. Finally, the objects of sight, that is colors, uh, which are the proper object, as well as many of the common sensibles, are, are imminent in their subject, whereas the objects of most of the other senses are things which, as it were, flow from the other bodies. For example, odors and sounds do not remain in what is smelled or heard, but rather, as it were, flow from what is smelled or heard to the senses. Uh, because sight senses what is more intrinsic to a thing, the sense of sight, along with touch, um, and it does have this in common, extends beyond its proper object to perceive all of the common sensibles as well, as well, and in this way surpasses the sense of hearing. Each of these ways show that sight is superior to hearing in making thing, things known. Uh, the greater power of sight, and especially its greater universality, thus suggests that it should be able to perceive a greater array of imitations than those which can be perceived by hearing. And thus that it might be a, a better medium for um, representing passions. Further reflection on the sense of sight suggests that its objects are also better fitted to represent the passions in particular. Um, as I pointed out earlier, the passions involve a certain motion, but the sense of sight, rather than, say, the sense of hearing, is able to directly perceive the common sensible of motion. Accordingly, it appears that the visible would be a better medium for the representation of the passions, because you can actually see motion in visible objects. Um, furthermore, the passions uh, consist in a sort of interior movement that involves a change in the soul and an alteration of the body. So passions are something very intrinsic to the thing. Uh, but we have just seen St. Thomas pointing out that sight attains to objects like colors and shapes uh, that are more intrinsic to their subjects, uh, whereas hearing is of sounds that sort of flow away from their subjects, as it were. Um, hence, it seems that passions would be better represented by those accidents that remain in their subjects, and thus that the visible is a better medium in which to place the likenesses of the passions. In answer to the objections, I would, well, first of all, concede the general objection proceeding from the fact that sight is, in general, a greater and more universal cause of knowledge. This argument, however, I think only holds of sight in general. Just because sight can give us more knowledge in general, it does not follow that in the particular area of, say, imitations of the passions, uh, it's going to do this to a better degree than hearing. Um, and so it doesn't uh, follow that uh, the passions... Uh, be represented better in visible objects. Um, still, I think it's important to recognize that there is a case to be made that there is some likeness of the passions in the visual arts. For example, I think it can be argued that the expression of an angry face in a painting or a sculpture can in contain at least a slight likeness of the passion of anger. Um, in responding to the objections based on the fact that the object of sight is more intrinsic to its subject, uh, and that motion is perceivable by sight rather than by hearing, I'll proceed by distinguishing the way in which intrinsicness and motion belong to the object of sight and the way in which they belong to the passion. It's relatively easy to distinguish the way in which the pas passion is intrinsic to its subject and the way that colors and, and shapes are intrinsic to their subjects. Uh, for one thing, passions are not on the surface of the subject, but within the subject. Uh, furthermore, although a, th a passion is intrinsic, it's not lasting but exists for a determinate period of time and then disappears altogether. Uh, whereas uh, as long as the subject of color or shape exists, there remains present some color or shape, and, and color and shape tend to be less changeable aspects of a thing than um, the passions, which tend to arise suddenly and often disappear just as suddenly. Um, the motion present in passion is also quite different from the common sensible of motion, which we perceive by our sense of sight. The passion consists not only in a bodily alteration, but includes a conjoined movement of the appetite. The movement of the appetite, however, since it is in the soul rather than in the body uh, alone, is, is not continuous and so cannot be called motion in the strict sense of the word. So the actual change of the appetite from not lacking hope to, to being hopeful is, a, is not a bodily change, although there are certainly bodily um, changes that go along with that uh, that come together to form the complete whole of the passion. But the sole part of that 
um, I think is a um, more of a discrete change. Um, uh, so that's uh, the first reason there that um, I think so. Well, let me lost my place here. So such a motion then uh, uh, is not adequately imitated by visible motion, which always appears continuous. Um, accordingly, it does not seem as though the fact that sight attains to the common sensible of motion makes its objects particularly fit to serve as imitations of the passions. Um, I think there are, in fact, several reasons why sound is a better medium for imitation than of the passions than visible objects. First, because sound is successive, it's naturally able to receive the sort of series of discrete uh, different sounds rather than a continuum. In this way, it better represents the changes in passion that occur um, in the soul, which changes, like I just said, I, I think are discrete. This points to an overarching difference in the way that sight and hearing perceive their objects. The sense of sight perceives its objects as a kind of extended and continuous whole. Um, everything is right next to each other, and while we can obviously sense the different places and positions of things, it's a kind of continuum uh, that we see. Uh, but the sense of the objects of hearing are not continuous with each other, but uh, distinct from each other. Uh, so in sight, even common sensibles such as motion are naturally seen as certain holes and not divided into parts. This medium of visible objects has a greater unity and uniformity um, than the medium of sound. While this means sight attains to its object in a more perfect and unified way than hearing, it also entails that the objects of sight are less able to represent a sequence of discrete moments, such as those found in the passions. A second reason why sound is a fitting medium in which to represent the passions is that sound has a certain likeness to the passions in the way that it exists. Passions as acts of the appetite begin from an internal perception of an object which moves the soul. An alteration of the body ensues from this movement of the soul, and the whole act terminates in an object outside the body to which or from which the passion tends. Like the passions, sounds are produced from within an instrument and proceed outside the instrument, terminating in the ear of the listener. Also like passions, such sounds are not lasting, but cease almost immediately once one stops playing an instrument or singing. For, this reason, for these reasons, sound presents itself as an, as an appropriate medium for imitations of the passions. However, the most important reason why sound is a better medium for the passions proceed from the unique forms that can be present in sound, forms which I will now go on to directly consider. In the course of his discussion of the voices of animals that I mentioned above, Aristotle notes three likenesses between sounds produced by the voice and those produced by uh, musical instruments that lead us to sometimes saw, call this, the sounds produced by musical instrument voices. First, both voice and instruments uh, can produce uh, sounds that differ in length, um, whereas in general, inanimate objects, the sounds they produce don't tend to last very long. Um, second, both can produce variations in pitch. Finally, both can produce sounds differing in dialect or articulation, and the Greek word here is dialecton. Um, uh, this difference, this last difference, is sometimes interpreted by translators as quality or timber, but St. Thomas uh, uses the term articulation. Well, I mean, the Latin he's using is locutio, and in and, and doing that, he, he holds that Aristotle is here drawing a comparison between the successive character of speech and the successive character of tones in instrumental music. So he's, he's interpreting this last similarity as a sort of similarity in the succession one finds in speech and the succession one finds in uh, the tones of a musical piece. Um, while the, I think the Greek term dialecton is broad enough to allow either interpretation, St. Thomas's reading seems somewhat better given the context. Since Aristotle is here drawing a comparison between animal voice and instruments, it makes sense to interpret dialecton as referring to something that is unique to animals, animal voices and instrumental ones, and not shared by sounds of inanimate objects other than those produced by musical instrument or at or at least not consistently shared by inanimate things. 
Uh, thus, um, and I think this idea of a kind of succession uh, is not something one typically finds in the sounds of inanimate things, a sort of ordered succession with definite emphasis like one finds in language and in music. Um, Thus, Aristotle distinguishes three distinctive features of voice that do not generally belong to sounds produced by inanimate things, but which are nevertheless imitated in the sounds produced by musical instruments. So these three features, variation in duration, pitch, and succession, are the characteristics required to form what we today consider the most important formal elements of music, namely the rhythm, the melody, and the harmony. Uh, Rhythm is constituted by a variation in length, and succession, where succession uh, as uh, sort of meaning this sort of articulation, dialecton, includes varying the emphasis given to different notes. Uh, Melody is constituted by a variation of all three features, duration, pitch, and succession. And finally, harmony is understood in contemporary music as constituted by the relation of various notes of different pitches uh, played at the same time or or how such... uh, I guess they're called chords commonly, how such chords progress throughout a piece. That's generally uh, how we use harmony today. Um, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later. I think Aristotle uses the term harmony in a slightly broader sense, um, uh, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, thus, the three basic formal features of music uh, uh, form the three distinctive attributes of sound that are shared by, sorry, reading from perform. Uh, the three basic uh, formal features of music result from three distinctive attributes of sound that are shared by voice and uh, instrumental sounds, but not by those produced by other inanimate things. It is worth noting that there are other quasi-formal aspects of music, such as timbre and volume, which certainly affect the way in which musical pieces imitate the passions, but such uh, aspects of music, insofar as they are common to both music and uh, noise of inanimate things, seem to me to be less central to the way in which music imitates the passions, although I think they do still play a role. Um, I'm going to focus then on the way that rhythm and the general features of melody and harmony imitate the passions and offer an account of why imitations of the pa- passions are constructed through such forms. Let me begin with rhythm. The rhythm of a piece of music is like a movement inasmuch as it consists in an ordered succession of tones. Such tones, even if they have the same pitch, are differentiated with regard to their length, emphasis, and the succession in which they occur. In order to have a rhythm, however, the length of the notes must be short enough that one can perceive the relationship between their lengths. Furthermore, the notes in a rhythm generally should have different emphases, The difference in emphasis gives rise to what I consider to be the most important feature of rhythm, namely the difference between the upbeat and the downbeat. The downbeat is defined as the first beat of a measure, but from sort of a perceptual and a philosophical perspective, it's the beat that we perceive as a place of rest and stability. The upbeat is often defined as the beat that anticipates this first beat, and from uh, the perceptual standpoint, it's, it's heard as a place of tension and instability and need of resolution. Um, and that's why it tends, it moves you towards the downbeat, which, uh, which it anticipates. Uh, the way in which musicians bring about upbeats and downbeats is partially caused by the difference in emphasis or accent that they place on notes. Each note can be viewed as participating to a certain degree in the nature of upbeat or downbeat to the extent that it is perceived as a place of rest or instability in relation to the surrounding notes. This alternation of points of instability and rest in a rhythm is what gives the rhythm the ability to be a likeness of motion. Um, In its strictest sense, motion, of course, is a continuous change in which each point of the motion is at once an ending point and a starting point. The continuity of motion cannot be perfectly imitated uh, in a medium such as sound since the change from one note to the next always creates an actual division and thus creates a discrete series of sounds. Nevertheless, the natural directedness of motion and rest is better imitated in a rhythmic sequence in which moments of instability are continually resolved into moments of rest. 
This imitation of motion found in rhythm is particularly suited to serve as an imitation of the passions. Since the passions are always directed to, to some object, whether real or perceived, rhythm serves to imitate this directedness. Furthermore, the passion itself involves not only a bodily change, as I said before, but a change in the appetitive part of the soul. So again, since the latter change is not in itself continuous, it's more accurately reflected in the discrete succession of a rhythm. In both these ways, rhythm serves as an excellent imitation of the movement characteristic of passions. This point becomes more, even more evident when we consider the division of rhythms given by Aristotle in the politics. According to Aristotle, rhythms are first divided into the more steadfast and the more mobile. And then the mobile rhythms are subdivided into the free and the vulgar. Um, this division parallels, I think, nicely the division of physical motion into the circular and the straight, and then the subdivision of the straight line rectilinear motion into natural and violent motion. Uh, Understanding the division of rhythms in comparison with the division of natural motions suggests a way of understanding the sort of passions imitated by each sort of rhythm. Like a circular motion which imitates rest in its very motion, the steadfast rhythms imitate more restful passions such as joy. By contrast, more mobile passions such as hope, fear, and anger are better imitated by more mobile rhythms. Finally, disordered or base passions are imitated by mobile but vulgar rhythms. An example of such rhythm would be the backbeat rhythm found in many rock and roll songs. What's characteristic of this rhythm is that it uses syncopation to place upbeats where one would naturally expect downbeats. This has the effect of making one ex what one expects to be a place of rest a place of instability instead. Conver conversely, natural places of instability are expressed in such rhythms as places of rest. Uh, this is similar to Aristotle's violent motion, which does not tend towards a definite end. At the conclusion of a violent motion, there is stopping, but there is no rest that's aimed at. Uh, likewise, in the backbeat rhythm, one may stop on a downbeat, but because it's treated as an upbeat, it will be perceived as a place of stopping, but not of rest. Uh, this comparison of natural motion and rhythm in considering the passions, I think, is quite fruitful in helping us to understand more determinately how music imitates the passions. Before I turn to consider harmony, I'd like to make one final parallel. Um, according to Aristotle, as natural motion approaches its end, it intensifies. This is certainly the case with the passions as well, and it seems to me that composers often imitate this, fashion of the facet, uh, this facet of the passions in their musical compositions by ending their pieces by means of a, conden of a condensa with a especially intense rhythm. Thus, the rhythm serves as an imitation of the passions by imitating this sort of conclusion of their motion. Um, so now I'm going to turn to consider the role of melody and harmony uh, in imitating the passions. Uh, it's somewhat more difficult to articulate this role, I think, than the role of rhythm. Uh, and this is, I think, because melody and harmony involve a new factor, namely the relationship between higher and lower pitches. Uh, as I mentioned before, modern, in modern usage, harmony in, indicates either the unified relationship among groups of notes with different pitches, um, but played at the same time, or the sort of progressive use of such groups of notes throughout a musical piece. Um, so uh, this is called you know, the use of chords in a piece. Um, melody, of course, refers to the prominent pattern of notes of different pitches played throughout the the length of a musical piece or a section of the piece. It's the tune that you whistle along to after you've heard the piece. Um, and it's generally, of course, received, reserved for the more prominent sequence of notes and generally those highest in pitch. Uh, at the time of Aristotle, harmony does not appear to have been nearly as complex as our present harmonies, and the term itself sometimes appears to have a slightly different sense than the way that we use it in contemporary music. In the politics, Aristotle refers to what we would call different musical modes uh, as harmonies. Uh, by musical mode, I mean a set of notes that make up a scale used by a piece uh, of music. For example, much classical and contemporary music is written for minor or major scales, and thus most of our music belongs to one of these two modes. Aristotle's use of the term harmony to denote the scale used for a given piece is helpful because the scale constitutes the main pitches used in the melody in what we today call the harmony of the piece. 
uh, instead of making a detailed examination of melody and harmony uh, as we use them uh, in sort of the modern usage, I'm going to consider this more general account of harmony as used by Aristotle to denote the scale of the piece and talk about how this is um, uh, an leads to an imitation of the passions. Uh, and this way, I hope to give a general account of the role of differences in pitch uh, in music and to explain how such differences give rise to likenesses of the passions. Now, um, before I really jump into that, I just wanted to point out that I think musical harmony harmonies are a necessity tonal, as to say they center on a single note uh, to which all other tones bear a relationship. Uh, I think in his discussion of natural slavery at the beginning of pol politics, Aristotle gives an implicit argument for tonality, uh, where he writes the uh, following, uh, which I'll quote directly. Wherever something rules and something is ruled, there is a certain work belonging to them together. For whatever is constituted of a number of things, whether continuous or discrete, and becomes a single common thing, always displays a ruling and a ruled element. This is something that animate things derive from all of nature. For even in things that do not share in life, there is a sort of rule. For example, in harmony. The goal of this argument is to establish the existence of a ruling element in any whole constituted of parts. But at the same time, the argument clearly shows that in a harmony of a piece of music, there is some part that rules and all the others to which, and to which all the others are related. Uh, now, in one sense, the ruling element is the form of the whole piece of music. Uh, but even among the material parts that constitute uh, such a form, there's a certain priority or centrality of one part over the others, just as occurs in natural things. Uh, so in the case of a musical scale, there is one tone to which all the others are related, a tone that I'll call the dominant tone. And I think it's pretty clear that Aristotle has in mind not just sort of the hierarchy of the form over the matter, but even among the parts themselves, the hierarchy of one part over another, since this is in the context of natural slavery. So he's trying to argue that there's a, there's a natural priority of master to slave um, as, a, as in addition to the whole master-slave relationship. Um, okay, so I'm calling this, uh, this main tone the dominant tone. Variations in the pitches of a scale or in the dominant tone of a scale result in various harmonies. So either changing the sort of pit set of pitches you're working with or which pitch is central, both of those, I think, will give you a different harmony. Uh, in Aristotle's time, the commonly used scales were named after Greek cities, such that one finds Aristotle speaking, for example, of the Dorian harmony or the Phrygian harmony. Uh, unfortunately, I looked into this, it's rather difficult to reconstruct these modes with any degree of certainty. Aristotle's uh, pupil, Aristoxenus, wrote a work on music, but we don't have most of that. And the first, I think, really reliable accounts of scale, scales come from Aristoxenus's followers. Um, who, who did use the, t the names of the modes, but it's unclear whether those were the, whether the names shifted. Um, and even if we could sort of establish the sequence of notes in, in a scale to which um, Aristotle's referring, we still have the additional problem of not really knowing which tone is dominant. Um, now I think there's a, there's a sense, there, 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 are, there is some sense that um, certain notes seem like they were dominant, but it's all a bit hazy. Um, but so it's, it's difficult to reconstruct that. Um, but uh, we still know in general from Aristotle's description of some musical modes in the politics that he regarded different harmonies uh, as particularly apt to represent different passions. For example, he holds the mixed Lydian is sad while the Dorian is more relaxed and the Phrygian inspirational. Now, while we are at present unable to construct these modes, we can nevertheless see Aristotle's point in comparison with the musical modes with which we are familiar. In more recent music composition, uh, compositions in minor keys are frequently described as sorrowful, whereas more joyful and hopeful pieces are generally placed in major keys. The different relationship of notes of such scales to the dominant note appear to account for the differences between the passions represented therein. Like ancient harmonies, modern scales 
also manifest an aptitude for representing specific sorts of passions depending on the particular scale chosen. This fact strongly implies the universality of Aristotle's contention that different harmonies are representative of different passions. Um, I'd like to try to give at least a general account of why different harmonies represent different passions. To do this, I think we need to consider the general principles of consonance and dissonance according to which different notes are related. Consonant no tones, generally speaking, are those that sound pleasant when played together, and according to mathematical analysis are those whose frequencies are related in simple whole number ratios or close approximations thereto. So this would be, for example, uh, the octave, which has a two to one ratio, or the fifth, which has a three to two ratio. Um, a detailed account of consonants would require an involved discussion of the overtone series and I think a lot of technical musical material, not all of which I have knowledge of. Um, but I think I can make a general mark here that helps explain why the tones related in small whole number ratios sound consonant. Um, when one perceives notes in such ratios, one perceives a note whose frequency uh, is a common measure of the frequencies of the consonant notes. And this common measure serves to unify the notes. In note with, notes with larger whole number ratios, it is more difficult to perceive a common measure since the note that would be a common measure is more distant from the original notes. Um, because no common measure is perceived, such notes are perceiving, perceived as having greater dissonance. Oh, this is somewhat of an oversimplification of matters, nevertheless points to the common principle that can be used in differentiating degrees of dissonance and consonance. Greater consonance is achieved when one can hear the unity of two notes by means of other notes to which the two notes are related. When one cannot perceive a note or set of notes through which to unite two notes, these notes sound dissonant. Now, as noted above, the fact that music is tonal means that there is a central tone to which all the other tones in the piece are related. The relationship that a tone has to the, do dominant, the dominant tone uh, is one of more or less dissonance and consonance. If a note is perceived as consonant with the dominant tone or somehow relatable back to the dominant tone, uh, it is perceived as more relaxed and in harmony with the dominant tone. If, on the other hand, the note is dissonant, one perceives more of a tension between the note played and the dominant tone. Thus, tension and relaxation come, in, relaxation come in to play in harmony. So this sort of pair of contrary, similar to the pair that we had earlier of stability and mobility and, and rhythm, we have tension and, and relaxation. Uh, Aristotle himself identifies tension and relaxation as key components of harmony in his discussion in the politics. There he holds that the tensor mixed Lydian harmony uh, expresses grief, whereas the more relaxed Dorian harmony expresses more steadfast and courageous passions. In general, relaxed harmonies seem to imitate passions with good objects, passions like joy and hope, whereas tensor harmonies generally, generally represent passions like fear and sorrow. This makes sense given the fact that even on a purely physical level, the bodily alteration of joy and hope, as I mentioned above, is expansion. Uh, which uh, best occurs when the body is relaxed, uh, whereas the bodily change present in fear and pain is contraction, which involves becoming tense. According, accordingly, more dissonant harmonies generally represent passions with evil objects, whereas more consonant harmonies are capable of representing good passions. While this is obviously remains a very general account of how music represents the passions, it nevertheless outlines the general way in which the passions are represented by harmony. Many details remain to be filled in, but for the present, I will leave my discussion of harmony at this. To conclude this section, then, I have outlined how uh, both the material and formal elements in a piece of music represent the passions. Sound, as the subject of musical forms, is a particularly good medium for representing music. This is because sound is easily divided into successive parts that can be rhythmically ordered, ordered to represent the music's, the movement aspects of a passion. Sound is also subject to differences in pitch that allow it to express the different sorts of tension and relaxation found in the passions. These differences do not occur prominently in visible objects, a fact that I think limits the ability of the visible to serve as an adequate medium for the representations of the passions. 
Thus, music serves as a particularly good imitation of the passions. In the final section of this paper, I would like to consider briefly how musical likenesses influence the passions by disposing the appetite uh, to feel passions of one sort or another and to a certain degree. It is important to note that in all cases of habituation, music has a more profound effect on us the more often we listen to it. In the politics, Aristotle suggests that music has a particularly powerful effect on us because of the great pleasure with which it is generally accompanied. Aristotle goes on to state the general principle that habituation with regard to the likeness of things, likenesses of things, and habituation has been particular to take pleasure in such likenesses, is close to being habituated to take pleasure in the things themselves. Thus, habituation to take pleasure in musical likenesses of a certain passion disposes one to take pleasures in the types of passions represented in that musical likeness. Uh, so from the standpoint of natural philosophy, I think that the reason for music's ability to dispose us to the passions and, and the reason it has such a great power stems uh, from a close relation of the cognitive and appetitive powers. Aristotle himself, near the end of the De Anima, this is in Book 3, Chapter 7, proposes a close relationship between the powers of sensitive apprehension and the sense appetite, writing... The faculty of appetite and avoidance are not different either from each other or from the sensitive, but their being is other. In, in commenting on this passage, St. Thomas interprets Aristotle as saying that the distinction between the sensitive faculty of perception and that of desire is a distinction in ratione, and that accordingly they do not have different organs. This appears to fit with St. Thomas's more general claim in the Summa that appetite is nothing other than an inclination that arises from the possession of a form. Thus, sensitive desire is merely the inclination arising from the possession of a sense form. The faculties of perception and appetite are collapsed into one that is only distinguished, distinguished in ratio. Um, when we begin to appreciate the unity of the sense appetite, and sense perception, the question of how perceptions or of likenesses of the passions affect the appetite becomes, I think, much simpler. Motions that are likenesses of the passions are first perceived by the sense powers. These motions, which belong to the sense power as cognitive, uh, by a kind of exemplar causality, I think, bring about a corresponding motion in the sense appetite, uh, thereby disposing the sense appetite to similar movements. This disposition of the sense appetite includes both a disposition of, a soul, of the soul and the disposition of the body. Um, recent empirical research in the field of music cognition by Professor Carol Cremanzel of Cornell University confirms the effect that musical likenesses have on the body. In uh, one of her recent studies, Cremanzel found that people were not only able to recognize the difference between happy, sad, and fearful music, um, but also experienced physiological responses to the music corresponding to the responses people, uh, of people who experience the actual passions. So um, they, they took things like heart rate, uh, finger temperature, blood pressure, and they found uh, something of a correspondence between the experience of the real passion and the experience of the likeness in music. Um, uh, thus, music influences the sense appetite as a hylomorphic whole. Accordingly, it is clear that music uh, influences the appetite be, by disposing it to feel certain passions. This, this disposition, disposition seems to be caused by music as an exemplar cause. So in conclusion, then, I hope to have helped clarify to some extent how music affects the passions I first presented the passions as a sort of hylomorphic whole in which the movement of the appetitive part of the soul and the alteration of the body are proportionate to each other. I then went on to focus on the role played by the various aspects of music in imitating the passions. I argued that sound, as easily divisible into successive parts, is an appropriate medium for imitations of the passions. We then saw that different qualities of motion represented in musical rhythm imitate both the more restful passions and the more mobile ones. With regard to harmony, we saw a similar distinction between tenser and more relaxed harmonies. 
Again, I suggested that this distinction mirrors the distinction between tenser and more relaxed passions. Having given an account of how music imitates the passions, I concluded by arguing that music affects the passions as a kind of exemplar cause that in induces appetitive dispositions to passions like those simulated in the music that's heard. Um, while the account here remains somewhat general, I nevertheless hope it has provided a starting point for more detailed investigations of how different sorts of music affect us. What is clear, however, is that the powerful effects of music on the passions remain an object worthy of further philosophical reflection. Thank you. <laughs>